Good morning, I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, Senior Pastor here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri, and welcome to our Sunday morning Bible class. Uh, we welcome all those of you who are here in person in our gym. We also welcome those in the greater St. Louis area listening on KFUO 850 AM and those literally worldwide, I guess, listening on KFUO.org. It's a pleasure to have you with us. And we're going to be continuing our march through the Gospel of Luke, starting with Luke chapter 12, verse 1 today. Uh, we thank Pastor Thompson for his work getting us through chapter 11 last week. So we'll start with 12, verse 1. Uh, there should be Bibles out in the back. There's a cart for those who are here and may not have a Bible or have it on your phone. Uh, there, there are Bibles available in the back. Let's begin with a word of prayer, if we could, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the blessings that you continue to shower down upon us, both as individuals and collectively also as your church. Above all, we thank you for the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior who came and lived and suffered and died and rose again, that we might have forgiveness of sin and everlasting life. And as we were assured again today, we thank you for your word, your life-giving and life-sustaining word to us. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together and study that word, and we pray your Holy Spirit's presence and blessing as we do so. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. As I said, we're going to go into Luke chapter 12. And just to put this again in sort of the bigger context to start off with, remember that there is a key verse, really, uh, that we looked at back when we were in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. And that's that what we call hinge verse for the Gospel of Luke, where Luke writes that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's kind of a, we don't really talk that way too often, I don't think. But it really, that's, that's really a good translation of it. It's like you stick your chin out with intention, right? And, and with, with purpose and with drive. He's going to Jerusalem. Not just to go to Jerusalem, of course, but to go to Jerusalem and accomplish that for which he came to this earth to do. To voluntarily lay down his life as the payment for all sin and all evil. So starting with 951, we have this extended section in the Gospel of Luke up until 19 verse 27 when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. This whole section is sometimes referred to as his travel narrative. And a lot of this material is uh, specific to Luke, or is exclusive to Luke. And so it's wonderful material, and we're so very thankful that we have this material. Now today, we're going to look at chapter 12, and we're looking at, first of all, this long section. Actually, this is a long discourse. It starts at 12 verse 1 and goes through 13 verse 21. So it's a long section here with Jesus uh, teaching, uh, literally, with one interruption. <laughs> uh, we're going to see in, in uh, chapter 12 here, at verse 13, someone in the crowd is going to interrupt this teaching that he is doing. But apart from that, it's a long discourse that he does here in instructing, first of all, his disciples in verses 1 through 53. 
And then after that, verses 12, verse 54 to 13, 21 to the end, he's going to be instructing not only his disciples, but also the crowds who are there as well. So this is really a key section. Uh, he's going to be talking about fear, anxiety, uh, the leaven of the Pharisees, uh, money and material things and the things of this life. And so it is a kind of a free-flowing uh, discourse of teaching by Jesus. Now, let's start with verse 1 and go just a little ways here. Uh, I'm going to read uh, through verse 3, and then we'll go back and kind of fill in and talk about uh, some of this. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. All right, so let's stop there and go back. Notice the, the way this starts off. Luke starts it off with sort of a connecting phrase here, in the meantime. So this kind of connects here, what's going to be said here, with, remember from chapter 11, all of the opposition and all of the hostility that Jesus was on the receiving end of. Remember, they were accusing him, some, of casting out demons by Beelzebul's power, by the power of the devil, and trying to you know, uh, accuse him of many different things. And so this, this phrase, in the meantime, kind of connects here with what went before. But notice how many people are there with Jesus. This is not just a, an intimate little trip to Jerusalem that he's on. It says, in the ESV translates, it's so many thousands of the people um, in uh, the original language, it would be myriadon, where we get myriads from. In other words, great crowds of people are following him. It's not just a little group of people, uh, you know, traipsing their way to Jerusalem. This is a huge crowd. Notice that they were trampling one another. You know, <laughs> almost need some crowd control here, it seems like, right? There, there's so many people, and they're running into each other, running over each other. And you kind of get the impression, you can almost feel the energy in that group, can't you? There's, a, a, I guess modern times we would say there's a lot of buzz about Jesus and what he's saying and what he's doing. And people are trying to figure him out out there, this guy out there in the wilderness. What's he all about? Now, notice he says, he began to say. So he starts now teaching. And notice in uh, the uh, verse 1 there, who is he teaching at this point? The crowds? No, notice there. He said he began to say first to, or to his disciples first. So even though there are these thousands of people, this is sort of a, you know, pulling the disciples aside moment here to begin speaking with them first and teaching them first. Now, that first, we don't know if that means first he's going to teach the disciples and then he's going to teach the crowd second, 
or whatever that means. He taught them first, taught the disciples first about this and then about this. We don't know. But it's clear he's not broadcasting. He's not speaking to the group at large. He's speaking just to his disciples in the midst of this great crowd. And you've got to wonder what's going through the disciples' minds, right? When they've got these thousands of people. And there they are with Jesus. And where is this all going? And he's talking about going to Jerusalem and what's going to happen. Even though he's going to tell them three times exactly what's going to happen when they get there, right? Going to be handed over to the chief priests, scribes, and elders, be crucified, and on the third day rise again. Not exactly what they wanted to hear, but especially that crucified part. And um, anyway, they're on their way. Now, he's, what does he want to teach them first? First thing he teaches them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Let's stop and talk. First of all, very basic, what is leaven? Yeast, yeah. So you, you uh, put yeast, and what does, if you put yeast in a, let's say we got a clump of dough here, and we put some yeast in the, in the clump of dough, what happens to the clump of dough? It arrives, yeah. And does that yeast just stay in the little part here where you put it in, just one side rise, or does it permeate? Yeah, it permeates the entire loaf. Okay. Now, you can tell by what Jesus says here, he's not speaking positively about, he's using leaven in this case as an image for the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And leaven is used in a number of spots in the scriptures as an image for sin. Why would it be a good image for sin or sinful influences, why would leaven be a good, a good image or a good way to portray sin and the evil of sinful influence? Yes, it, it, it has the potential at least to spread, doesn't it? Just like, I don't know what we would compare, I was trying to think of another comparison, but... but Viral. viral, okay, yeah. that's good, that's good uh, present-day language, right? It, it, it's, uh, it's highly contagious throughout, throughout the entire group. And that's, that's what he's warning them about. Now notice, he doesn't say just in general sin, but what sin is he, is he focusing on when it comes to the Pharisees here? The leaven which is what? Hypocrisy. Now let's talk about hypocrisy. Uh, what is hypocrisy? We say, we, we sometimes call someone a hypocrite, right? And actually in the original language, it is the same word that is used for an actor in a drama. And back in ancient times, they would have just a few people portraying different characters, and they would be called actors or hypocritos, and they would hold up a different mask to change their character and be another character. And when that character was done speaking, they would put up another mask and speak as though they were that character. So you can see how it applies to someone who is a hypocrite, right? Uh, says one thing here, says another thing there, or in the case I think it more widely understood, uh, says one thing or does one thing, but what? In their heart, 
believes another, right? And it seems like with the Pharisees, what Jesus keeps running into is this outward show of religiosity or piety when what about their hearts? Their hearts are evil, right? There's another spot where he he, uh, refers to them as whitewashed tombs. And the, the tomb, that's in ancient times, when there was a body inside a tomb, you painted the outside white. You whitewashed the outside so that people would know there's already a corpse in there. And, of course, it looks nice and pristine from the outside, but what's happening on the inside of that tomb? It's rotting flesh, right? And so by referring to them as whitewashed tombs in another spot, he's not complimenting them. Uh, quite the opposite. And so there was this continual, uh, you know, Pharisees criticizing Jesus for not, you know, his disciples not washing hands, or his disciples plucking grain on the Sabbath day. Continually, continually, continually uh, attacking Jesus for, again, outward shows of piety. And Jesus would always respond with, yeah, what about your heart, though, right? Uh, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And so on. Now, I say, just take a minute here. Um, The Pharisees are, are, uh, we love to uh, uh, criticize the Pharisees. Uh, They actually started with a good intent in mind. Uh, We think around 300 or so B.C., uh, the Pharisees were a group that really wanted to make sure that Judaism, God's people, were kept pure from Greek influences and later on Roman influences, but especially the Hellenization of God's people, the Greekanization, if you will, of God's people. And so they wanted to make sure that things were kept pure and true. They were lay, they were lay people. They are not, they're not clergy. They're lay people. And what developed over time, though, was this obsession with keeping all of the outward forms of the law. As if keeping the law was what made you right before God instead of the other way around, right? You're one of God's people, and thus, in faith, you strive to keep the law, right? Uh, same as for us today, right? We want to. We want to be pleasing in the sight of God. We want to live a God-pleasing life, not so that we can become his children, but because he's already made us his children, right, in the waters of baptism. And so you get this. In fact, they even had 613 additional rules that they made, uh, and they called it a fence around the law of God. And it's called a fence because these were additional rules that made it, in their mind, near impossible that you would actually then end up breaking God's law. In other words, if you're going to keep the Sabbath day, to to, uh, keep it holy, there's whole, all these rules, dozens of rules about what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath day to make sure that you didn't come close to breaking that commandment, breaking that Sabbath law. And so again, Jesus has, and we're going to see it's going to increase this opposition and hostility toward him. 
especially from the Pharisees, is going to increase as he gets closer and closer to the cross. And in John's Gospel in particular, it comes to a head after he raises Lazarus from the dead. And they decide, this is it. We've got to get rid of this guy. And they had even decided that before him, but that was the last straw. So anyway, he's, he's telling his disciples now to be on guard, to uh, watch, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, right? Now, let me ask you this. Do we as Christians have to be careful that we don't have a, uh, would you say, a leaven of hypocrisy in ourselves? All right, for those on the radio, everyone's shaking their head yes. <laughs> you can't hear that on the radio. Uh, but can't we sometimes act as though, and we're not careful, that we're so much more holy and sanctified than the rest of people, right? And in fact, sometimes people outside the church will be critical of us as Christians, saying things like, well, they're just a bunch of people who think they're perfect, or, you know, they're, that they're above us, and so on. Now, you know, I, we know that's not, that's not the case. I mean, what, what's the first thing we do when we come in, well, we have an invocation, but what's the first thing we do right after that? We confess our sins, don't we? I, a poor, miserable sinner, right? Not I, a holy and sanctified person. No, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities, right? And so, but again, we have to be, uh, that outward witness sometimes is what other people pick up on. And we have to be careful that we don't come across that way, right? As, as you know, we're better than you, or, you know, we're, uh, maybe someday you can get up to, to our level of holiness, you know, if you just try harder. And you've got to be careful. I and mean, we don't mean to do that, but sometimes maybe we can come across that way to people. So maybe something to think about. Any comments or questions before we move on? Yes, Mark? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mostly, mostly the moral laws. What they were, they were. Although some of them also dealt with um, uh, some of the ceremonial, but mainly the moral law. Yeah, mainly the moral law. Okay. Yes, Ruth. Yes, good comment. The comment was, yeah, remember that for the Passover, what did they have to do? Uh, the Jews were instructed way back in Exodus, what did they have to get rid of from their houses before the Passover? All the leaven, yeah. And uh, so again, used as a, a symbol there. And of course, uh, that's why we use unleavened bread uh, for the Lord's Supper. That's exactly what Christ was using uh, when he celebrated the Passover and said, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, just, just one verse, and we won't take the time to look it up, but uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, uh, Paul uses that same imagery of leaven and says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So there's, again, there's that idea of the leaven getting into the lump and spreading out, permeating the whole lump. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened, 
Okay, so there's, again, another spot where in two verses it's used twice to, again, have that same sort of imagery of a sin or sin in general that permeates uh, the group. Okay? And, um, well, we better go on. I'm <laughs> talking about something else here, but let's go on. Um, so going on, uh, verse 2, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. So where is, what, to, to what is Christ referring when he says here that basically there's going to be no more secrets? Nothing is going to be hidden. When might he be referring to here? Yeah, his, his second coming, Judgment Day, when all is revealed, right? And so for those who think that they have gotten away with a particular sin, no, or whose, uh, whose lives, in this case, are maybe not consistent with what's really in their heart, Jesus is saying, it's all going to be revealed. In other words, you may be able to hide it in your heart now, but it's all going to be revealed. It's like when you go into the dark room and flip on the, the floodlights, right? It, it is all revealed, right? And all known. So no more dark secrets in the heart. It's all revealed, all made known. Uh, therefore, verse 3, so as a result of that, Whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. In other words, again, you may have thought that this was all secretive and, and uh, uh, concealed from others. No, it's all going to be laid bare. There are no secrets, right? When I teach confirmation class, I always, we talk about the different qualities or characteristics of God. And one of those that we, well, a couple of those that we talk about is the fact that God is all-knowing, omniscient, right? And is everywhere present, omnipresent. And I always ask, stop and ask the, the young people the question now, is this a good thing or a bad thing? That God knows all things? And he's everywhere present. And they kind of, you know, is on, on the one hand, it's kind of disconcerting, isn't it? That there's nothing I do, nothing I think that he doesn't know. But on the other hand, when you're going to be wheeled into surgery, isn't that a comforting thing, right? There's nowhere you can go that he's not there with you. And there's nothing's going to happen to you that he doesn't already know about. And not just there, but there with his love and his compassion, right? And so the same sort of thing here. Now, this is meant in a more negative, judgmental way, of course, by Jesus, that nothing is hidden. There, there are no secrets, okay? And remember, we were back, when we were back in chapter 11, remember, uh, they were trying to figure out how Jesus is casting out these demons, and it's, Luke says right there, Jesus knowing what was in their hearts, Right? He didn't, they weren't maybe even vocalizing this, but Jesus knew what was in their hearts. And the same thing here. Okay? All right. Le, uh, Bud? seems to be turning this from the Pharisees to the disciples. Mm -hmm. Warning them now. Right. Yes, good, good point. This is, again, this is addressed to the disciples. 
And he is preparing them. In fact, we're going to see he's going to right away here be preparing them for persecution that they are going to face in the future. So, yeah, this is kind of a, you know, he's on the way to Jerusalem. Here's your, here's your, your uh, instructions as we're traveling here, as we go. And then, of course, after the resurrection, he's going to be with them, uh, teaching and instructing them as well. All right, let's, we better uh, head on here. Uh, next, uh, we talk about fear. He's going to talk with them about fear. In fact, the word fear is used five times in these coming verses. And really, the, the real motivation for standing without fear is the gospel, isn't it? Is the good news of the gospel. Not the law, but the gospel. So let's see what he has to say here. Let's, I'm going to read 4 through 7, and then we'll go back and, and take it apart. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yet, yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? I'm going to go a little bit farther. Why, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. All right, let's go back. You can almost hear in the background here Jesus preparing these disciples for what is going to end up happening to them and in their lives after he ascends in particular. And again, it's the persecution that they are going to face. So let's go back to verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. And if you're one of the disciples, I think you, your ears might perk up a little bit. Why is he talking about that? Killing? Don't fear anybody who can just kill you. Okay? But fear him who, after he has killed you, has authority to cast into hell. Now, who would that be? Who should they really be fearing here? Not man, but... God. God is the only one who has the authority, right, to cast into hell. Fear that hurt. Fear God. Don't be afraid of those who around you can kill the body. That's all they can do, right? They can't take your faith. They can't take your salvation. But they can simply end your physical life here. Okay? Um, and cast, uh, has the authority to cast into hell. Now that word for hell that's used here is kind of an interesting one. Uh, it's the word Gehenna. You ever heard that before, Gehenna? And it comes from a Hebrew word that goes back to the uh, Old Testament, uh, actually. And it is uh, the valley of Hinnon, which was, was, you can still go there and see it, it's a valley that comes and empties into the Kidron Valley, which separates, for example, Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Calling the Kidron Valley a valley is kind of uh, maybe a little overstatement. It's, it's not that wide. You can, you can walk it in about 10 to 15 minutes. But the Valley of Hinnon entered into that valley, and it's the Valley of Hinnon, translated Gehenna in Greek, where... 
In the Old Testament, I think, uh, as you read the Old Testament, the most shameful thing that God's people did was joined in sacrificing their children to the god Molech, the god of the Edomites, and Baal. Can you imagine that? Sacrificing their children because that's what the Baal worshippers did, and that's what the worshippers of Molech did. And so by the time of Jesus, that valley had another purpose as well, or another use. It was the dump for the city of Jerusalem. And there was an ever-burning fire going there uh, so that garbage and refuse would be burned. And you can imagine the stench and the smell of it, right? And so that became a, an image, and I think a pretty, pretty good one, uh, for hell. Or is it, 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 that Gehenna became the sort of equals hell. And so Jesus is saying here, don't just fear someone who can take your physical life. Fear the one who has the authority, who, after you're dead, to cast you into Gehenna, right, or hell. And they would know what he's talking about when he talked about that. Okay, it was a striking image. Uh, Again, tried to think of any modern-day parallel. I couldn't think of one. But, uh, you know, where I grew up, we had a city dump, but it wasn't on fire the whole time, right? I mean, we took, our, took trash there, but it wasn't just always smoldering and always burning like this. So it was, it was a, quite a vivid image uh, for the people of that time. They would know exactly uh, what he's talking about. Um, so don't fear the one who can just take your physical life Fear the one also who has power over you eternally. And just one little aside here. You know, I was, when I was reading this, I was thinking, um, you know, again, when we do confirmation class and we talk about um, back in Luther's time, that Luther, of course, was declared to be an outlaw and was wanted dead or alive. A hundred years before him, there was this guy named John Huss, who taught many of the same things that Luther was teaching. Anybody know what ended up happening to him? Burned at the stake. Yeah. And so I asked, the, you know, I always ask kids, well, why in the world, just because he taught some things, why would they go to the trouble of killing him and burning him at the stake? Well, here's the answer. The, the answer was that, you know, on the one hand, if you, you can attack someone physically and harm them physically, but it was it felt that if you are teaching falsely, you have the the potential not just to harm somebody physically, but to harm them eternally, right? To harm them eternally in terms of their eternal welfare. And that's why they took it so seriously and would even put someone to death who, who they thought was a false teacher. And of course Luther uh, runs around saying he's teaching, he's not teaching anything, uh, he's teaching many of the same things Huss was teaching, and all his friends were saying, don't, don't say that, what are you talking about, don't say that. We know, we know where he ended up. So, again, the same thing here. You know, look beyond just the physical harm here, look at eternity, right? The big picture, okay? And so going on then, in other words, don't, don't, so you get, kind of get the idea they're going to be, it looks like going to be facing uh, physical danger. He's kind of preparing them for this. 
Um, then, uh, verse 6, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten by God. What's, what's Jesus trying to get across here? Sparrows are cheap, right? And in our, in our thinking, in, in thinking of God's creation, not the, not the pinnacle of God's creation, right? But yet what? Every one of them is what? Is, is known to God. Every single one of them is known to God. And uh, none, none of them are forgotten by God. Uh, verse 7, why even the hairs on your head are all numbered. I always say I'm making this easier for God every day. <laughs> it seems. Um, er, so every hair on your head is numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows, right? And I was thinking again as I was you know, preparing for this that um, I don't know if I've ever used this as a you know, pre-surgery uh, verse to share with people, but isn't that, again, a real comforting thought? That even the hair, we are so well known by God that even the hairs on our head are numbered, right? And we are of so much value in the sight of God. If even he, he never forgets about a sparrow, how much more is the point? It's sort of an argument from the lesser to the greater, right? If he even cares for these, these little sparrows, how much more does he care for you, right? How much more value are you than one of them, as he says there, right? So again, a great, a great um, so trust, in other words, trust in him. Don't worry, don't be anxious, don't fear. He cares for you, and you are of great value to him, okay? All right, let me stop there for any comments or questions before we're going to launch into another section now about confessing Christ before men. Any comments or questions? All right, then, let's go on. Uh, starting now at verse 8. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now let's go on, let's stop there. Go back and talk about this a little bit. That word acknowledge is kind of a weaker uh, trans, uh, translation. The word actually means to confess. In, uh, uh, but you can look this up, homologeo. And it literally means uh, to same say, or to say the same thing that what says? Scriptures, right? We're confessing the truth. We're same saying what the Bible says. So whoever same says about me, so will I same say about you before my Father. But whoever denies me or does not confess me, um, he will not, the Son of Man also, uh, will not acknowledge, right? Before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God, but the one who denies or says no to Jesus before men will be denied before the angels of God. So let's stop and look at the bigger picture. 
We've just been seeing how Jesus is preparing the disciples for possible persecution. And now, what is he acknowledging that they better be doing in the future? Confessing him, right? Because they are going to be tempted to what? Deny even knowing him, right? How about Peter in the courtyard, right? Three times. I don't know the guy, right? And vehemently denies even knowing him. Okay, uh, and you think of um, you know you think of Paul before uh, Saul before he was Paul, right? Was actually warring against Christ and Christians. Okay, so Jesus is knowing, of course, that they are going to face persecution eventually, and is getting them ready. Not only don't fear those who are only able to kill you and can't do anything beyond that, but also. Confess me before men, and I will confess you before the angels in heaven. Now, let's stop for a moment. Uh, What about the church confessing Christ today? Are there areas where we are tempted to, let's just say, compromise our confession a bit? You know, water down our confession a bit of Christ. Are we tempted in some ways? <laughs> Comment was, I hope you're not. No, I'm not. But uh, <laughs> yes, yes, and that, that is the pastor's role, is, is definitely to confess Christ. But how about as a church? Ruth? Okay, yes. Uh, Yes, the comment was that many churches today are tempted, at least, to proclaim what people want to hear. And you mentioned especially when it comes to sin, that, that either, either it's just a little problem we have, you know, just a, we just need a little help here and there, uh, or deny it altogether. I uh, remember I was on Vicarage, <clears throat> and uh, this was, of course, a long time ago, and um, I got done... I think it was my first or second sermon, and um, um, the principal of school uh, came up to me, and I thought, oh, what do I say now? And she said, you know, Vicar, I don't think we need to be hearing about all this law and sin stuff. You know, people have their whole week, they're downtrodden, when they, and when they come to church, they want to hear good and happy news. Well, of course, we, we preach the gospel, and the gospel predominates, but... She was after me to not, not preach any law or talk about any sin whatsoever. So that's an area. We, we are definitely maybe tempted as a church to compromise, right? Any other areas? Dennis? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, so hypocrisy would be an area where we're, even what we were talking about before would be an area where we, we might be tempted to compromise our confession of Christ. Okay? Any other areas? We're not, uh, I'm going to talk about one, at least it's going to be a part of next Sunday's sermon, of what I call the exclusive claim of Christ 
and the exclusive claim of Christianity. Do we believe, teach, and confess that there are many ways to salvation? No. There's only one. And some people find that offensive. That there is, is Christ didn't say, I am a way, a truth, and a life, right? I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, right? And we might be tempted to say, well, you know, you believe what you believe, and as long as you're sincere, as long as you, you know, and, or if you live, the, live as, as best you can in your life here on this earth, you know, it's kind of like in the end, God's going to smile and just everybody, y'all come, uh, sort of thing. And, you know, that, that sounds nice to people, but, boy, that's not what the scriptures say, right? Uh, Jesus just talked about the one who has the authority to cast people into Gehenna, right? So there are those areas, even when it comes to Christ, not even talking about things like life or sexuality, but even about Christ, where the church can be tempted to compromise, to, to water down its confession. And, uh, boy, we hope and pray that uh, we in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, never succumb to those kinds of temptations, to, to say it's Christ or something, or it's Christ plus something. No, it's only Christ. Dennis? Okay, the, mean, the means of grace, did you say? Means of grace? Okay. Yeah, so the, the comment was, and I guess, you know, I guess it's a matter of opinion, but, you know, uh, the idea, do we, do we speak or proclaim these things as forcefully as we could? And uh, maybe in some cases we have not, as, you know, we, we have to, again, confess our own sins when it comes to the lack of a confession, right? Or, you know, you've maybe been in these situations where uh, you're, amongst several people, and, and you're talking, and um, something comes up, and instead of speaking out, what do we do sometimes? Just remain comfortable, right? Quiet, don't, don't rock the boat. And uh, again, there's this point where confessing Christ uh, is so vitally important. And, um, you know, I, I mentioned a couple weeks ago about how we... We unfailingly do this when it comes to weddings and funerals because we know we will have unbelievers there who are there not because they're here with you know, faith in Christ, but just because a friend or a relative has died and they're here. And we want to make a bold confession of Christ uh, at all times. That's, again, as a church uh, as well. Okay? So... Just as the disciples would be tempted at times to uh, uh, compromise, you might say, their confession. Again, look at Peter in the courtyard. He is eventually reinstated by Christ. But they're going to, down the road, be put into situations where, again, it's going to cost them their life. Uh, with the exception of John. What? Yeah, so the question is, what about the emphasis on angels? I didn't read anything as to why the emphasis is there on the angels, uh, except that, again, the idea of uh, accompanying on the last day and the judgment and so on. But, yeah, witnesses, that's, that's possible as well. Okay? All right, we better uh, go on just a little bit more here. Uh, let's see. We'll go down to verse t uh, 10. 
And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. All right, let's stop and uh, talk about this a little bit. So this, anyone who speaks against the Son, Jesus, will be forgiven, but that assumes what? Repentance and faith, right? They're not forgiven apart from that. There's an old Lutheran principle, and it says, let Scripture interpret Scripture. In other words, when I come across a verse like this, and it sounds like, what do I make of that? Where's the first place I should go? To other Scripture, right? That might help shed light on what this particular, in this case, Jesus is saying, or this particular verse is saying, so you can speak evil against the Son, Jesus, and be forgiven, assuming there is repentance. Again, Peter is a great example of that, isn't he? He's reinstated by Christ after he denies even knowing Christ, speaks against Christ, and uh, denies even knowing him. Or look at, again, look at uh, Saul and Paul, right? Saul, Paul, uh, warring against the Christian church until... Uh, the risen Christ appears to him on the road to Damascus in Acts 9. So that can all be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit or denies the Holy Spirit, denies what the Holy Spirit does. And by the way, what is the job of the Holy Spirit? To point to himself? To, uh, to uh, speak about himself? To Christ, only about Christ, only pointing to Christ. That's his purpose. That's his role, right? It calls us to faith, keeps us in the faith. And so this is another way of saying, if you're speaking against the Spirit and the work of the Spirit, that is usually, uh, many, you'll hear this referred to as the sin against what? The Holy Spirit, right? And what is the sin against the Holy Spirit? It is... Unbelief, right? Because it is the Holy Spirit who creates that faith. Why is it the unforgivable sin? And we'll talk about this in a second. But because by definition, you don't have what? Faith in Jesus Christ through which sins are forgiven. Now, but let's, I know what you're going to say. But what if eventually there is repentance and a coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, there, that is forgiven, obviously, right? And uh, again, there is no faith, there, let me say, there is no forgiveness and salvation apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And the point that Jesus is making here, really, is that if you're speaking against the Son, you're also speaking against what? Holy Spirit, who's pointing to the Son. You're de really denying both. You can be forgiven, again, with repentance, and you can be forgiven uh, even if you uh, deny Christ and deny the work of the Holy Spirit, if, again, that Spirit keeps working and you're brought to faith, right? Now, I have had people come to me over the years, and they'll have a... a a sin that they've committed that is really a serious, in their mind, is a very serious sin. 
and they're still feeling guilt about that, and they'll say to me, Pastor, is that the sin against the Holy Spirit? What's the answer? No. And, or you might hear some people say, you know, I, I'm not sure, do I, do I really believe or, or not, and so on. And I, my response always is, well, first question, no. The, the sin against the Holy Spirit is unbelief, and it can't be forgiven by definition. But the very fact that someone would be asking that question, right, the second question I'm to now, that is a sign of what? Is a sign of faith, right? And, and, and trust, okay? So we want to be careful when we talk about this. Uh, all sins are forgiven. Even the sin of unbelief is forgiven if, and only if, there is repentance and a, a, a faith in Jesus Christ uh, is substituted for that unbelief. Even that is forgiven, okay? And of course, we always wonder, you know, you get some people, talked about this, I think, before as well, how many, for some people, that we, as family members or friends, might be one of the only connections that they have, the hearing about Christ and the Christ, and then sometimes you wonder how many more times, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, the kingdom of God is near or is upon you, Right? How many more times in their life will the kingdom of God be upon them? In other words, right next to them. So kind of something to think about. Uh, and, and the role we pro, uh, play as those who can bring Christ to people, including our own family members sometimes and our own friends. So it's an important role that we have to confess Christ before them. Now, he's going to go on here talking about uh, fear again, or um, anxiety. Um, let's go down, let's skip down to, uh, well, let's go, I'm going to skip a little bit here. Well, let's go to verse 11, because that kind of finished. And when they bring you, notice not if they bring you, but when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers of the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So notice there again, he is preparing them for their future. And it's not if they bring you, but when they bring you before synagogues. So synagogues would be these houses of prayer that would exist throughout, even throughout all of Asia Minor. And these would be the Jewish houses of prayer and worship. So they're going to be brought before them. So they're going to be brought, these disciples are going to be brought before religious authorities. And notice also, not, not only synagogues, but who else? Rulers and authorities. And again, Paul is going to be a great example of that, as he's brought before various uh, Roman authorities. And uh, are they supposed to, does he tell the disciples, uh, let's take some time now and prepare your address uh, when, when you're brought up before these people. Let's, let's uh, turn on our computer and put together a good, a good uh, statement. No. Don't worry, he says. Who's going to guide them? Who's going to bless them? The Spirit will... Now, again, not, we don't think here he's saying that the Spirit's going to reveal something that 
you haven't, or, you know, you won't already have heard, or that I something other than I told you. But the Holy Spirit will teach you in that hour. So you're going to be you're going to be taught by the Spirit. Right now, you're my disciples when you are here, but you're going to be disciples of the Spirit. The Spirit is going to catechize you or teach you. And interesting, that word defend yourself, uh, if I say the original language, you'll hear an English word that we use um, in the church, apologesistha, apologesistha. From that we get apologetics, yes. The, we sometimes call it the defense of the Christian faith, right? It's not... It's not apologetics in that we're apologizing for the Christian faith. It's quite the opposite. We are actually defending or speaking on behalf of, it's kind of what it means, speaking on behalf of the Christian faith. And so don't worry when that happens, when you're called up before both religious officials and government authorities, the Spirit will uh, teach you in that very hour what you are to say. Okay? Dennis? Right, yeah, notice he's not, he's not promising them that other things aren't going to happen. In fact, he's already told them, don't be afraid of those people who can kill your body, right? So again, he is not, uh, um, what would you say, uh, painting a rosy picture here for, for them, at least from a physical standpoint. But on the other hand, spiritually, he certainly is, isn't he? That the Spirit is not going to abandon them. The Spirit will be there teaching them what they are to say in that very hour. Okay? All right, anything else? I think I'm going to stop here because we, we next launch into a whole section about um, material things, money. By the way, uh, this is one of three times on this trip to Jerusalem that Jesus stops and talks about money and material things. And we got here the parable of the rich fool. We, we heard that a couple of weeks ago as our gospel lesson. And Jesus actually taught a lot about money, material goods, the things of this life. And sometimes um, uh, pastors don't like to preach about that subject, and sometimes people don't like to hear about that subject, right? Uh, in fact, um, when we had our uh, capital campaign last time, um, I think it was about the third Sunday in that capital campaign, there was a lady who stormed out of church and said to, said to an usher, he's preaching about money again. Right? So there's something about it, I'm not sure. In fact, I haven't checked this out, but I heard one time that uh, it was a stewardship presentation, and the, the presenter said that Jesus talks more about money and material things than just about any other, taught more, I should say, taught more about money and material things than just about any other subject. And we don't seem to follow that pattern uh, quite so much. Uh, and also, I think one of the most misquoted Bible passages, 1 Timothy 6.10, you'll hear people say, money is the root of all evil. The love of money, or the, yeah, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And that's certainly true, isn't it? Yeah. But you often hear people misquote that verse. So, next week, uh, we'll talk about going on from here and uh, talk a lot about money, material things, worldly goods. And again, 
the fact that our Heavenly Father provides all of this for us, right? And seek first the kingdom of God, all these things will be added unto you, right? Let's close then with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.